Well, anyway, we probably ought to pray, pray and look tonight at the book of Jonah. Let's see, uh, Rod, will you do something? Thank you, Father, for this time that we have to get together and look into your word. We ask that we might learn tonight the lesson from Jonah and, and others as we look. Just uh, be able to apply these things to our lives so that we might be better servants fit for you. We thank you for the time that we have. We thank you for our instructor and ask, Lord, that you just be with him, give him words to say, and, and, and give him a clear mind and clear speech. We just thank you for the opportunity of praising you and learning more about you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Last week we uh, started looking at Jonah. And I went through some of the, the issues related to the title and authorship, date and setting. Uh, and as I suggested, I see the book being dated around 780 BC, which a lot of times for us that's meaningless. But you can just remember it's 780 years before Christ, approximately. So I wanted to go through the message, and that's where we'll uh, spend some time this evening. Notice I summarized the message of Jonah in this way. God instructs his people as sovereign creator. He has the right to show his compassion by delivering those who repent in response to his message of judgment. And consequently, his servants must submit, submit obediently to him. So notice there's a number of items in that that we're going to focus on. First of all, did you notice I said he instructs his people as sovereign creator? That's point A. If you notice, he has the right to show his compassion uh, on his creation. That's part of the second part of this. And then God's people must submit obediently to him as sovereign Lord. Uh, that's the final part. Now you need to remember here, Jonah is disobedient. Now I'm not saying that uh, you know he's you know he's not a good man. You know I suspect that he has positive fruit and stuff like that, but he did have an area of weakness, and that related to his can I say disdain for the Ninevites. And yet, even though God tells him to do something directly, he tries to get out of it. So I always say he's my kind of prophet. Because I'm like Jonah in many ways. And I think if we all think about it, we are too. So I'm glad this book is in the Old Testament because it does say something even about a prophet who struggles with this sanctification. Most prophets, we don't get that type of detail. But this is a book about a prophet and not so much about his message. So we have a, a slice of his life, the highlights here revolving around this event where he had to go to Nineveh. So let's look at this. and Notice, first of all, A, God is presented as the sovereign. The Lord is presented in Jonah as being sovereign ruler of the world. 
This is reflected by Jonah's affirmation that God created the sea and the dry land. Look at chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. You probably remember how the story developed. God commanded him to go to Nineveh and preach against it. But Jonah goes in the opposite direction. So he runs away and explains how he gets on this boat going down to Joppa and tries he will. He can't get away from the Lord. And so when the storm comes up at sea, these uh, pagan sailors, pagan captains, idolaters, what they would do is uh, they would have some form of lot casting. And with this, the person would choose their lot and the person who got the uh, short end of it, what he would do is he would tell what possibilities could have put them in the situation they're in. And what they would do is to go right down the pecking order. In this case, they get the pigeon the first time around. And so John's got to tell a story here, and he tells them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord God. Now remember, they're at sea. So once these pagan sailors hear that he worships the God of heaven who made the sea and the land, they know they're in bad water because they're at sea. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. So the sea got worse and worse. So finally, they fighting against their desire not to throw Jonah overboard. He says, throw me overboard. They do that, and the sea becomes calm. But put yourself in a sailor's sailor sandals. They're in a position where they're at sea. And this, this Hebrew tells them he worships the God who made the sea and the dry land. Well, may I say at this point, I think even these idolaters would have recognized that God was sovereign over the sea and over the sea at least for them. Well, that's my point here. God is sovereign in Jonah. Jonah points to it. These sailors point to it. We see his sovereignty all the way through the book. His providential control of the nations of his created world is implied in 4, 10 to 11. Uh, remember at the end of the book, the Lord said, you have been concerned about the vine though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. Now, by the way, the word that's used here is, is Adam. It's, it's a reference primarily to the male population, which means they have more than this. So it's a large city. But, but notice here, God says they can't tell their right hand from their left hand. They don't have discernment. 
Should I not be concerned about that great city? Well, the implication here is that uh, there is a sense God is concerned. He's concerned about pagan nations. Uh, you know, I think God's concerned about the U.S. I think uh, I think we're under a state of judgment. But God's still looking to save out of people as he is all over the world. Uh, you know, it's amazing. The one good part of the 21st century is I've got to do quite a bit of traveling for the seminary. I've been to India, an undisclosed island where the Chinese house shows leaders me. I think you all know what it is by now. Yeah. Down to one of those secrets that got out. <laughs> Somebody said it when they were on the platform one time. And uh, got into Africa and things like this. And it's been very educational. The only thing I regret is I wish I would have done that when I was younger. The problem is, is I might have packed up and gone somewhere else. But you know, it's interesting to see how God has raised up a group of believers around the world. And in China, what's amazing is that we thought the gospel presence was dead. But I remember the first time I talked to Jay Group, that was years ago. And uh, one of the, the, the real leader of the group, uh, his dad, well, sorry, his grandfather had been led to Christ by J. Hudson Taylor. But I learned on that first trip how did Christianity survive there? They kept it in families and families close to them. So they were underground because they were persecuted. But yet Christianity grew. I think when we were there, the men said that they were confident that there were more than 120,000 Christians. Their statistics, the Chinese statistics, I think at the time were about 110,000. But they, they were pretty confident that it was higher than that because the Chinese government, they're not going to give you the best number. So they said that there's other places that gave different statistics on that. But I remember when I first went there, that was overwhelming. Because I always thought they needed the United States. And it turns out God doesn't need us. So, that just shows you how God works. And he does have concerns for other people groups. Now that doesn't mean that God's always going to save them. God desires for all men to come to a knowledge of him. Second Peter 3. But he obviously hasn't decreed for all to come, or all would come. But God's a complex being. There's a one sense uh, God hates sin. The sinner's condemned. He hates them. He hated us when we were outside of Christ. We were condemned. That's what I mean by hating us. We were condemned. And uh, yet in the midst of our hatred of God, God shows us and Christ did come, and he did suffer vicariously for your sins and my sins. And the great thing about preaching the gospel around the world 
you're finding out who the elect are when they come to Christ. That's how we find out who the elect are. We preach the gospel and say repent and believe. Um, they maintain that lifestyle. We can say that was one of the elect. But that's how we find out. But even for the reprobate, God still has a certain desire. I mean, he doesn't kill them on the spot. The fact that he'll let them often live to three score and ten. Remember? The guy who played God, played God, I should say, George Burns, he lived to be a hundred. May I say he had a hundred years of mercy? But he was storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And friends, when he died, he is facing judgment. And because sin is against an infinite God, he will suffer an infinitely long time. And it will he doesn't be. have to worry about lighting his cigar. No, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got fire all around him. <laughs> yeah. Can we call him the man on fire? <laughs> but anyway, my point is, is that while they're still alive, God has compassion on them. When his compassion is completely cut off, that's when they die. But friends, for God to be just, they have to pay an eternal penalty because God is eternal. Everything that's against them is against an eternal God. Therefore, the consequences for our sin is eternal condemnation. It can't be anything short of that. So, see, God's going to, His justice is satisfied either through eternal condemnation or the God-man came to earth, lived a perfect life. He was accruing righteousness by his obedience under the law. We call that his uh, act of obedience. All his suffering culminating in the cross as part of his passive obedience, he surrendered himself to death at Calvary. So the act of obedience is where he's living obediently under the law. By the way, that verse, for he, uh, for he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Notice, we are the righteousness of God in him. Somebody had to give us righteousness. And it's really by his uh, act of obedience. So we need both his active and passive obedience. But friends, justice is met with Christ's death. So our penalty has been taken care of at the cross. For the reprobate, their justice will be exacted through all eternity. But justice will be exacted. So that's the point. So what I'm saying is that you know, we see implications <coughs> from this verse. God had, God had a concern for the Ninevites, like he has concern for all men. But don't take that so far as to say he saves all men, or would be universalist. And I think if somebody can become a universalist and understand what they're believing, they may have made a profession of faith, but they're not, they're not saved. There's a famous reprobate in our day, Bart Ehrman. 
He was raised in an evangelical home. He's completely denied Christ. He rejects him publicly, defies him. May I say he's an apostate? And he will have an eternal suffering. You, know, you can't mess with Christ because you will get burned. But for right now, he's still alive. So in God's mercy, he permits him to live. But that mercy will run out. So anyway, we can see something of God's compassion here. He has that right as the sovereign Lord. The Lord is also responsible for the storm at sea as well as the calming of it. Further, in 117, he ordains the fish. In 4.6, the climbing gourd. In 4.7, the worm. 4.8, the strong east wind. His sovereign design relates even to the mightiest of pagan cities. This book clearly demonstrates the Lord's sovereign control. That's the point. And uh, the sovereignty of God should have a practical <coughs> significance for us. He's got everything under control. Well, we have good times of life in our youth, as we age, as we become a little bit more stumbly, as we face various aches and pains. That was part of God's sovereign design. And the great thing about it is, as His people, He uses that to conform us to the image of His Son. It's not to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's for sanctification. <laughs> so, you know, to me, that's one of the wonderful things God has everything under control, and I can trust Him for it. Well, that's the sovereignty of God. Notice point B: as the sovereign Lord, God has the right to show His to show compassion on His creation. God's freedom to act in compassion is the major emphasis of this book. Jonah recognized that the Lord was a compassionate Lord. Look at four two. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. God who relents from sending calamities. Now, if you have a version that says repent, you need to cross that off and put relent. That's a bad translation. God does not repent. He relents. He can withhold judgment. But he, he does not repent. Now, Numbers 23, 19 is very clear on that. So, you know, I've corrected the King James all my life when we looked at Jonah. Because I think when it says he repents, bad translation. Anyway, Joel, don't use the King James here, so I doubt that anybody has it. Does anybody have the King James? No? Because your church, I think they use the NIV. Correct. Okay. Well, we've got it right now. By the way, I use the NIV. I memorize verses in the NIV. But I have to admit, 
I do use the ESV and the NIV if the church uses. So whatever the church uses, that's the Bible I use. Uh, I'm doing a men's retreat down in Louisville, Kentucky this weekend, and the church uses the ESV, so I will, I will use the ESV. Uh, you know, when I teach Sunday school at Inner City, I use Nancy. That's by what church is. Uh, if Pastor Gorn would have listened to Dr. Combs, he would have gone with the NIV, but <laughs> he was a hard man to persuade. He wasn't persuaded. <laughs> Dr. Combs was not quite as efficacious as we would like him to have been. But anyway, we've got it right. Now, notice here, With, with this relenting, he's going to withhold his judgment. Uh, look at point two. God's compassion is demonstrated by his delivering those who repent in response to his message of judgment. To appreciate the significance of this, we need to look at the object lesson of 4, 5 to 8. So let me read the whole chapter so we can pick up the flow of thought. By the way, this is the key chapter in the book. Those who focus on the big evangelistic campaign, and I don't see it as a great evangelistic campaign, they lose sight of the last chapter of the book, the most significant part of the book. So let me read it so we can appreciate the grand finale. I read the first three verses, or I first down to verse 2. Pick up with verse 3. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, that's a very drastic response. He doesn't get his way. Of course, the 40 days aren't enough, but it looks like he's not going to get his way. And he wants to die. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And we say, absolutely not. But Jonah's not thinking that. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah goes out, by the way, he's so strong there. He, he would have to build a shelter. And even that would not have done a very good job. In fact, as we'll see, it wasn't completely doing the job. He really needed air conditioning. And a, and a real shack. One that's insulated. So it doesn't get out. But he didn't have that. So notice, he built the shelter. And he's sitting there waiting to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided. Now, this is the word I understand. It, it can also be translated appointed. I'm okay with the way the NIV translates it, but we need to understand this a little bit more emphatically. He ordained. He appointed. He sovereignly dictated. that this vine would grow up. 
and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine, moving from dying to desiring life. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chews the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Now notice, God's again doing something. This is his uh, intervention. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. He's talking about being schizophrenic. I mean, he sure seems like it here. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? By the way, why does God bring up cattle here? On chapter 3, when the Ninevites hear that God's going to judge them, they do go through a ritual repentance. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They even put it on the cattle. So I think you know, God here is saying this because of the cattle that have sackcloth and ashes on it. Now, may I say, they were taking this judgment pretty seriously, as they should. So anyway, uh, God does have the right to be concerned about that great city. Now, we need to hunker down here for a moment to make sure that you understand the object lesson. Uh, notice in my notes, I have three points on the point two. I say to appreciate the significance of this, we need to look at the object lesson. Point A, the word translated as great in four sets. You probably noticed that when we're going through that. Uh, then the Lord God provided a vine and made a crop get shade for his head to eat his discomfort. Yeah, by the way, I should say it's it's discomfort here in four six. So my notes are nearer there. I'm not sure I was using the NIV when I made it not have the problem. See, I use all sorts of translations. But notice, rather than Greek, uh, we want to put discomfort. Now what we need to do is we need to compare this with the end of chapter 3. When God saw this 3.10, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them destruction. I had evil. You know, I must have been using nasty here. That's something I can explain. But it's really the word destruction. <clears throat> so the two words here are grief and destruction. Grief in 4.6 destruction in 310. 
and Hebrew they're the same term. So notice, I want you to see the, the connection of it is that the Hebrew works the same. Secondly, for protection from judgment, Nineveh repented. And I should pause here. Look at the repentance. Let's go back to chapter 3. Once the king hears how Nineveh is going to be destroyed within 40 days, by the way, Jonah wasn't a very good evangelist because he didn't say turn or burn. He just said you're going to burn, baby, burn. <laughs> and that was the point of his message. So, they hear this. And this rises all the way to the king. So he issues a proclamation in Nineveh, verse 7. By the decree of the king and nobles, do not let any man or beast Herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Now notice, he does not know that God will spare him. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. But notice, part of their ritual with repentance, they put on sackcloth and ashes. So I am saying this is part of a work. They're turning from their evil deeds, which in a sense is positive, but they do go through this ritual of uh, mourning, putting sackcloth and ashes, and they go to such an extent, they even do it with the uh, cattle and the flock they own. So they're taking it serious. So anyway, Nineveh repented, and that's what I'm referring to, their ritual of mourning. And for his protection, Jonah built a hut. Nineveh repents, Jonah builds a hut. They both are doing something for protection from the judgment. The judgment for Nineveh is the coming judgment. For Jonah, it's the heat. What I'm suggesting is God's put Jonah in a situation that parallels the Ninevites. Neither of these provided sufficient enough protection from the Ra'ah grief, discomfort, whatever your translation has. Uh, God had to respond to Nineveh by withholding his judgment. And for Jonah, for him to have adequate protection, it was necessary for the Lord to provide Jonah with a gourd. In one case it's a withholding, and the other it's a providing. But they're both acts of God. So the common denominator, in each case, God is responsible for this. So here, uh, he's going to withhold judgment. That's an act of God. And uh, for, for Jonah, he raised up the gourd, the plant. A lot of debate what that is. 
I think uh, it's probably a pansy or something that grew up. And, no, I'm kidding. It's uh, some climbing type of gourd. And he raises this up. So the hut wasn't giving Jonah sufficient protection. God provides this gourd that comes up and provides additional protection from the sun. That's God's gift to Jonah. For Nineveh, it's his withholding judgment, a meeting judgment. And then notice point C. This is where God makes his point to Jonah with the object lesson. God did not continue to honor Jonah's divinely protected, provided protection. He removed the plant in a night. Jonah thought this was unfair. Remember, he protests. However, the point is God's removal of the plant was his prerogative as its creator. Jonah didn't raise, he didn't plant a seed. He didn't water it. No, he didn't put down no, no plant food or anything like that. God's the one who brought it up. It was his, not Jonah's. And yet, Jonah, he's ticked off. However, the point is God's removal of the plant was his prerogative as its creator. He brought it into existence and could also have preserved it. This was his right as creator. Likewise, it was God's right and his alone with Nineveh to deliver or to judge. That's his prerogative as the sovereign who's going to show his compassion on whomever he chooses. In this case, it's on the pagan Ninevites who do take seriously what he says. So, that's the object lesson. I like the last part here. See, God's people must submit obediently to him as their sovereign Lord. I'm still thinking about the disobedient prophet. Uh, he's turned out to be an ugly individual over this situation. So God wants to drive on this point here. Notice his question in 9a. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And he insists he does. I'm angry enough to die. Now, may I say, that's strong emotion. Very strong emotion. This is God. By the way, this is basically the same question, question in verse 4. God said, have you any right to be angry? He brings it back up again. May I say, Jonah's sanctification was definitely not where it should be. He's questioning God all the way along. Then Jonah's response, 9D, I'm angry enough to die. Well, that's pretty significant. Same basic thing he said in verse 3. But let's look at the application in verses 10 to 11 to really drive home the point here. Jonah had pity on a gore over which he did not work. In fact, let me pause here. Let me... Uh, in case we miss it, let me point something out. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned. Or I think Nancy has, has compassion about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. 
Notice the same Hebrew verb used in verse 11. Should I not be concerned about a great city? Jonah's concerned about vines. God's concerned about people. He talked about the irony there. Here's a prophet who is not concerned about people. He doesn't have compassion on them. But God does. As our sovereign Lord, he has his right to show compassion. In fact, as Gentiles, God showed compassion on us. You know, if Israel would have been faithful in following God in faith and repentance and obedience, the church would never be here because of their disobedience. The Gentiles were brought in into what the New Testament calls the church. But friends, because of their disobedience, we've seen compassion. Now I'm not saying God did not have compassion on uh, Gentiles in the Old Testament. He has a measure of compassion here. But I don't think the Ninevites were necessarily... You know, maybe somebody was saved who knew more about a message of salvation. But based upon what we read in the book, we don't know that. I think we understand Jonah's big idea in chapter 3 when he preaches to him. Uh, he says in verse uh, verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. That's his big idea. There's nothing about repentance. The other reason why I'm skeptical about the repentance, I don't know, you'll read some of these comments. Um, all more lay-oriented commentaries how there was a swing for uh, God during Nineveh's history. Well, I've looked at those records. It's really a shift to some form of henotheism, one God in the midst of many. But this comparison to say that they believe in God, it says in this text, trust in Naboo. Trust in him only. Friends, it's the wrong God. I mean, you can believe in Naboo until you're blue in the face. But that's not trusting in God in our day through Jesus Christ. So it's the wrong God. That's why I'm so skeptical. Now, I do think they did have a genuine repentance, but I don't think it was a genuine repentance on salvation. It's genuine to get out of this mess. Do uh, you remember First Kings with Ahab? He's, he's uh, told he's going to die. Now, by the way, are, are you all familiar with Ahab? Remember, he's a wicked king, a wicked Jewish king. He worships false gods. And so God tells him he's going to die. And so he goes through this ritual of repentance put it on sackcloth and ashes. God responds to him and says, I'll give you 15 more years. Friends, I don't think his repentance was unto eternal life. I think it was enough to get him out of the jam. And God did spare his life. And I think the Ninevites, I think it's like that myself. So I don't use this for any great evangelistic tool. I mean, remember being taught in the seminary and 
uh, I can remember thinking the first time I thought this book was about evangelism. I remember I was thinking to myself, as the teacher described this as the greatest evangelistic campaign in history, and I said, I thought Pentecost was. <laughs> well, I'm still convinced Pentecost was. <laughs> now, I'm not saying, I think it's Ninevites that knew more about the Lord. There could have been people saved. I just don't think the whole group saved. Just like the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, it says in, uh, I think it's Exodus, yes, Exodus 14.31, they believed in God. But in Numbers 14.11, we're told they're unbelievers. In fact, in Jude, verse 5, they're put in with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So how do we know when people really believe? You have to look at the context. And further, we have to see more said about their life after that. That's why I say that's why I'm skeptical. But I'm not denying that some individual Ninevites were saved. I, I wouldn't I could not do that. I don't know what they knew. I just know Jonah didn't give them enough to tell them the full message about God. If they would have, they would have been going to Israel to worship. And we don't see anything in their records of ever doing that. So that's why I'm not convinced of it. So anyway, we've covered it quite a bit there. I might have given this a little bit of a different slant. Yes, sir? Um, are you saying, or is this saying, that Jonah was felt sorry for the vine, or he felt felt sorry for himself because the vine did not... I think he felt sorry for himself. Yeah. Okay. But he does feel bad about the vine going away. Only because... That's right. Was, only because it didn't protect him anymore. That's exactly right. Well, I don't think, how can you, how can you say, how can you make that exactly opposite when you, he wasn't concerned about the people, but he was concerned about the vine? Wouldn't it be, he wasn't concerned about the people, but he was concerned about himself? Well, I think God says so. He's been concerned about the vine, that's why I said <laughs> But it's all ultimately his selfishness, his selfishness. So the analogy only goes so far. I guess that's what I'm saying. Okay. It can only go so far. I could not press it to the details. At heart, Jonah cared about self-preservation. Yeah. That's exactly what's going on here. You know, it's funny, though. Here's a prophet of God. In 2 Kings 14.25, it tells us he is a prophet of the northern kingdom. He undoubtedly preach the message of repentance there. I mean, Otherwise you wouldn't be a prophet anymore. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. But here he is, you put him out of his element towards people that he just disdains. And he he just can't handle it. I don't know that I can't say that all points in my life that hasn't dominated me. There's still people that I may not feel comfortable with. I'd like to say I don't dislike anybody, but I may not feel comfortable around. I would like to think 
if God told me to go, I would go. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily would have. I have the same problem that Jonah had. His depravity had not been eradicated. But it is good because we have a book here that shows us, here's a prophet who can be just like you and I. He wasn't any super saint. So I thank God for the microcosm into his life to say, you know, there's other things about prophets we may not know. You know, to me, it looks like Jeremiah could be all up and down emotionally, too. In fact, there have been books written about Jonah from a psychological perspective. I don't know how they can do that. But it does... I mean, I, I can see how they do it. I'm not sure that they really have the evidence to craft out this great uh, psychological profile of them. At this one point in his life, it looks bad. <coughs> So, anyway, so there are questions about John. This is my, well, I mean, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Oh. Do we hear anything about Jonah afterwards, after that? Well, yeah, we will hear a few things, in, not in Old Testament history. Oh, okay. But in the New Testament, he's mentioned. As after this fact, or yeah, after just this? Well, it's referring back to this okay. this incident, right? Right. Yes. So nothing else after his life. We don't know what happened to him in the end. Yeah. I would like to think, you know, perseverance of the saints is a valid doctrine. I would think he would have grown in grace. Don't you believe in perseverance? I'm sure you do. I know your husband does. You know, he was always wondering about my high, my kids in high school. They were ever going to persevere. <laughs> I know a number of other teachers have wondered too. Those two kids in high school knew more about theology than I'll ever know. They did know a lot. I can tell you that. You know, I remember Bob when uh, Jenny Stratford taught him in third grade. He asked her how many point Calvinist she was. As a third grader. <laughs> As a third grader. And he told her, I'm a four pointer. Well, he's no longer four-pointer. But he's gone on to another point. But nevertheless, you know, we played games with theology when our kids were little. So they did know it. Uh, hopefully with my youngest son, it's still there. I'm not too sure. It's hard to know whether Joshua is really a believer. Occasionally we'll see some minimal evidence that I, it's like I told my wife, we have to face reality. Christ may not have died for our son. And she said, life's not over. And I, you know, that was an ill-advised remark on my part. Because she balanced the table out real quick. <laughs> so we don't know that. And all we can tell is by their lifestyles, they get older. Because I've seen people come back the Lord that I would never would have thought it would I can give you names of I can give you the name of somebody from the inner city Baptist church. Yeah, I have lunch with him once a month and been doing it for five years. Oh eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. Oh. Somewhere in the process before he went, when he got there, he had repented for 
his sinful ways. And so he, he goes to another church now and he's involved with it and it's amazing the work of grace there. You know, uh, but you know what his son does uh, over the internet, the brothers, they all go through a book with their dad. Oh, it raises the questions and they respond. And so dad and his sons are involved with it. But that says a lot about <laughs> but it's really when he went over he was really expressing that the Lord was working in his heart so he came back and we went out to lunch one time and so I asked him hey, want to go out to lunch again after his son was gone so we've been doing that once a month for, for five years now uh, except for his hiatus when he went to China so we just never know. And that's why we need to be cautious. That's why I always say, the remark I made to my wife is no lie. Because I do some, see some areas where I still think that there's some glimmers of hope for my younger son. It's not where I'd like to be. But he knows a lot of theological truth. He knows a whole lot. Oh. So it's... But I think in if you have enough children, every family's going to have somebody that they wonder about. That's just the nature of life. Uh, except for those who don't have children, then you don't have to worry. So, but we should worry anyway, because that's sin. I have concern. Never worry. My wife worries. But I just have concern. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway. Well, I've said enough about that. I'm going to damage myself. <laughs> but anyway, because I do believe in perseverance of the saints, I would think if Jonah lived much longer, he would have generally repented. In fact, if he wrote this book, it's anticlimactic. So if he's responsible for it, I would like to think he got the point. So anyway, that's my take on it. Okay, any other questions on that? Okay, well, let's flip over to Micah. This is another book where I teach a class on. In fact, most of my prophets I teach classes on. But I do a Hebrew exegesis class on Micah, I think, every two to three years. And with Amos as well. And I've got a class on Jonah and Nahum that I go through and stuff like that. So that's why the books are so fresh in my mind. I I can go through things here without my notes, but I always do it just to make sure I don't go too far because I have a tendency to do that. That's the problem. I always tell my Hebrew class, I was the best Hebrew teacher that I'll ever be the first year I taught Hebrew because I didn't know as much. And I was scared. So you couldn't integrate all that additional information. That's the problem. Anyway, I'm 63, so you have to bear with me. I'm no longer spring chicken. <laughs> anyway, let's look at the title of authorship for Micah. He's got a good name. Who is like Yah? It's an abbreviated form for Yahweh, the Lord. Who is like the Lord? 
So either he changed his name, or this reflects the parents' faith. Not much is known about Micah outside of what we know from this, this prophetic book. According to 1.1, Micah was from Moresheth. In light of 1.14, this was located in the area known as Gath in the Shefla. The Shefla is in the southern part of, the, of Israel. It's the lowlands. That's what it means. Uh, some of you have probably been on a trip to Israel, might have been to the Shefla. No, we yeah, we did. Um, what would be a key city there? Well, we went about as low as we could go on our trip, and then we went back up, because this was supposed to be an academic tour. So we were hitting the highlights, and I think the highlight was Jericho. Man, I was in shape, and I was sweating like it was election day. I'm serious. <laughs> uh, by the way, we should be sweating the election day. <laughs> so, it's uh, it's not the area you want to live. Uh, there's a lot of hot spots there. But people adapt and survive everywhere. I remember Jericho. We were underneath the shade, and there were all about three, I assume they were Palestinians, who were working on the roof of the house. It's 120 plus degrees outside. And they're just working on it. And I said to myself, you get used to where you live. And I suspect as you get older, it's probably too hard on yourself. But it was amazing. Well, this is the area where they live in. It's hot. Notice furthermore, uh, it is situated about 1,000 feet above sea level sea level, overlooking the coastal highway and the plain over which countless armies and commercial caravans had tra traversed the distance between Egypt and Mesopotamia. This area is definitely not as low as the Dead Sea. I think that's, is that the lowest part of the world? Oh. But whatever, it's, it's pretty low. And so, well, this is not at the same level. Then as far as the date and setting, based on Micah 1.1, our prophet had an active ministry when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah reigned. Consequently, the prophet seems to have been or served between 750 and 686 B.C. He had a long ministry. Uh, Notice that's about 66 years. So that's a long ministry. Now he wrote his book somewhere between 735 and 710 BC. So that's the date. Mike is a contemporary of Amos. So the historical setting is the same thing as what we saw with Amos. Okay, well, this is a good place to break. Uh, my watch is 8.15 and it's never wrong.